to keep the flow. The podcast that looks under the hood of the creative process to keep your creative engine humming. I'm your host, Scott McLemore, a drummer and composer living way up north in Iceland. I've been involved in various creative pursuits, including working in graphic design and writing about creativity. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you what I've learned along the way. Here we go. Did you ever feel misunderstood as a kid? Probably, right? I did. Or at least I said I did. It seems like that was my go-to line when I was upset. Nobody understands me. Why was that so important to me at 10 years or, or however old I was? When I moved to Iceland, I can remember feeling some of that same frustration when most people didn't seem to get my humor. I had spent 30 years crafting that sense of humor in Virginia and New York, and then I get to Iceland and it felt like starting over. Maybe not completely starting over, but there was an adjustment period. It took me a while just to even realize that people didn't understand when I was trying to be funny. At first, I thought they just didn't like my jokes. Turns out, they just thought I was weird, which is not completely inaccurate. I thought back to an interview I heard with Garrison Keillor, who had moved to Denmark and then moved back to the U.S. He decided to come back because his humor didn't work in Denmark, which turned out to be a deal-breaker for him. I didn't want that to be me, so somehow I figured it out. I'm not sure exactly how I did it, but listening more to what Icelanders considered funny was part of it paying attention to what they laughed at. Not that I was totally scientific about it. I didn't take notes or anything like that. I just remember it being on my mind a lot. It's a lonely feeling not being understood. But as artists, as creative people, do we crave understanding? Do we create hoping somebody will get us, the real us? I don't think so. Do we hope they will understand the symbolism or hidden meaning in our work, if there is one. Probably not. I think we're too busy working on the next thing to even think about it. As a musician or composer, I hope that somebody will appreciate my work, but what it means to them will probably be something completely different than what it means to me. And when I hear applause after a performance, I don't equate that with understanding. First and foremost, I see it as acknowledgement. If it's a lot of applause, then I'll interpret that as appreciation. It's an exchange of energy, which I feel is crucially important for all performing artists. But understanding? I don't even see that as a possibility. Actually, speaking of applause, here's a funny story. This really happened just the other night. So we're playing a concert, and it's a good crowd, probably almost sold out. Backstage in the intermission, somebody says, Wow, it's a nice audience. And I said, yeah, except that one guy, kind of half-joking, because there was this one guy in the front row who just seemed like he was dragged there by his wife. I saw him clapping, but his facial expression told me he would rather be watching Game of Thrones or something. After the gig, that guy comes up and buys three albums and joins the mailing list. How could I be so off? I don't know. Anyway, getting back to my point... This idea of the misunderstood artist, I think, is a, is a bit misunderstood. I don't think artists in general are craving understanding. When people appreciate our work, it feels gratifying. 
But the meaning within the work is sometimes a mystery, even to us. The need we feel is to create, that's all. Being acknowledged or appreciated is wonderful, but the real need is to do the work itself. If we feel like our work is meaningless, that's usually a lack of inspiration or we're not happy with the quality, or maybe it's getting stale because it reminds us too much of what we've done in the past. It might stop being meaningful to us, but do we really need to have a discernible, outward-facing meaning to make work that is fulfilling? Or is art that asks a question but doesn't give an answer actually the answer we're looking for? Today we're going to talk about what's the purpose of meaning in art. Is an underlying meaning a requisite for great creativity? I mean to tell you, this is going to be an episode. Let's get started. Actually, I should probably start with some caveats. Of course, there is art that is hoping to be understood, whether it's a comedian landing a punchline or a playwright telling a story or a painter making a political statement. These are all hoping to communicate something, but the artists themselves are not trying to be understood. Sometimes the work is deeply personal. It could be an expression of loss or joy, but the interpretation belongs solely to the beholder. All right, now that we have that out of the way, here's a little story about myself. This is a little embarrassing, but when I was younger, I mean like seven or eight, I thought that when people said around the bend, they were actually saying around the bin. Like if someone was giving directions and they'd say, you just go up the road there around the bend, uh, left at the light. This is Southern. I'm from Virginia, Southeastern Virginia, almost North Carolina. But I just remember thinking, how do they know which guy is the right bin to go around? I never asked anyone. I just tried to figure things out and rationalized it somehow. I swear I wasn't much older when I figured out that it had a D on the end. I swear. Actually, it was last week. No. But <laughs> I remember this moment when I said to myself, oh, bend. And I was so happy that I hadn't asked anyone and embarrassed myself. And that's what we do as kids. When we hear lyrics on the radio about things we don't understand, we try to make it fit in our little brains, make it fit with what we know. Is this really any different than how we are as adults, though? We experience a movie or a painting or song, and we try to understand it as best we can. We try to make it fit with what we know. However, when it comes to art, sometimes there's nothing to figure out. But our experience tells us that, yes, there is always some deeper meaning, and we're just not smart enough or artistic or creative enough to figure it out. Who's to say that there's only one interpretation? And if it's just a feeling, if the beholder can't find the words to describe their own interpretation, is that not okay? Is confusion or uncertainty a valid interpretation of art? I was listening to another great podcast about creativity. Actually, it's one of the inspirations behind me starting Keep the Flow. It's called Creative Pep Talk with Andy J. Pizza, not his real name. 
He had on Maggie Smith, not the actor, not Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter, but a poet who lives in Ohio. At one point, he asks her what the one thing she thinks is most misunderstood about poetry. And she starts talking about how poetry is taught in school. I found it so inspiring hearing her views about how there's too much emphasis on students deciphering literature, being able to explain what everything means. Why does it have to mean something? Things can have different meanings to different people, or they can have no meaning. But a piece of art with no intended meaning isn't entirely meaningless. It's just waiting for the beholder to complete it. The meaning is whatever you think it means. Then again, it might not resonate with you, and then it remains without meaning for you. While for someone else, it might be profound. There's a great interview on Big Think with a neuropsychiatrist named Eric Kendall. You can find it on YouTube. I'll put a link in the episode notes. He also wrote a book called The Age of Insight about the history of research into psychology and art. But in this interview, he talks about how we, as beholders, create different images in our minds based on the same artwork. If two people look at the same painting, these people's different backgrounds, upbringing, life experiences cause different aspects of the painting to resonate differently with the different beholders, and so their brains process the image differently. They notice different things, while other parts go unnoticed and fade into the background. Kandel points out that Ernst Chris, an Austrian psychologist and art historian, thought that great art was ambiguous because it allowed for these different interpretations. In other words, it let the viewer take part in the creation of the work. I love the idea of this. The British art critic Jonathan Jones wrote a piece for The Guardian which talks about how Bob Dylan changed his direction in the 60s specifically to push back on the idea that people understood him. Jones compares Dylan to painters like Rothko and Kandinsky as artists we could all learn from. As beholders, the ambiguity lets us engage with the work on our own terms. Going back to Maggie Smith, again, the poet, not Professor McGonagall, she says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but something like, finding the one true accepted meaning of art is ridiculous. The more important question is how does it make you feel? What does it make you think about? What does it mean to you? When we come back, I'm going to explore the idea of ambiguity as a device and how we can use it in our own work. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If so, it would be wonderful and actually very helpful if you can take a moment to review and or rate the show over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It helps like-minded people find the show. One way you can support the show while also getting early access and bonus content is by becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month. I've been doing Patreon for over a year now, and it's been great sharing my creative process with listeners. And now that I'm officially a podcaster, I'll be expanding the scope of the content there to include the show. Again, any albums, books, podcasts, or anything else I can think of will be linked in the episode notes. 
using my affiliate links is another great way to support the show. And of course, I'll put a link to my Bandcamp page if you want to listen to my music and maybe buy something, just a thought. I should also say that the data shows that amazingly, people are actually listening to this, which is a bit of a shock. So thank you for giving me a chance. I really want to create a resource here that will help people navigate their creative lives. If you feel like you're getting something out of this or have an idea for an episode topic or a guest suggestion, I would love to hear it. Send me an email at scott at scottmclemore.com. And now back to keep the flow. So I'm in the habit of watching Stephen Colbert's monologue from the night before on YouTube because of the time difference here in Iceland. They've usually just posted it right when I get up. It's actually a great way to start the day with some laughter. I recommend it. Occasionally I'll watch a guest appearance if it's somebody interesting and if I'm feeling lazy. Last week he had on Christopher Nolan, who never does interviews. And I guess Nolan wouldn't come to the studio, so they taped the interview in Einstein's old office at Princeton. It's worth watching. But what stood out to me was this one exchange. Stephen Colbert asks Christopher Nolan, do your films have meaning or being? In other words, do I have to get your film or can I experience your film? He answers, if you experience my film, you are getting it. This says so much. If you experience it, you get it. You may not know that you get it, but whatever the experience was for you, if you came up with some complex theory of what the meaning was, or if you walked out of the theater in a daze, that's it. They're both right. A little later in the interview, Colbert asks him to comment on a theory he has related to Tenet. And Nolan declines. He explains that he made the mistake of doing that in his early days when asked about Memento, but his brother reminded him that if it's ambiguity he's after, he needs to keep his mouth shut. I actually have a tune called Ambiguity on my first album, which is probably one of my favorite things I've ever written. And I picked that title because, number one, it fit the vibe of the music, and number two, the meaning of the word fascinated me. Normally, when people use that word, it has a negative connotation. If you're doing a business deal, you want no ambiguity. Things should be clear or it could be disastrous. But for those of us not in mergers and acquisitions, ambiguity can be beautiful. It can be the desired result. Nolan brings up the spinning top at the end of Inception. He has some ideas about what happens, but he won't tell. Although even that statement shows that He's not even sure what happens. It could go either way, kind of a Schrodinger's cat situation. But that lingering uncertainty, the uneasiness, is exactly what he was aiming for. Shirazay Hushiari, I'm probably mispronouncing that horribly, she's an incredible Iranian artist living in London. She creates work that purposefully uses ambiguity to involve the viewer. She says her painting, Black Square, is a protest against the idea of knowing. You could also say it's a celebration of uncertainty and ambiguity. Sometimes work that seems profound or deep and mysterious can simply be unintentional. By that I mean the artist created something that felt right to them at the time 
but they had no idea what it meant. Like that Leonard Cohen line, the baffled king composing Hallelujah. When the artist doesn't know what's happening, but they're doing it anyway. If you're a fan of talking heads like I am, you know that David Byrne wrote some incredibly thought-provoking lyrics, but I heard him say in an interview that he didn't really know what any of it meant. They were just words that came to him and seemed to fit with the melody he was working on. But that doesn't mean that his words can't be meaningful to the listener. When a song resonates with us, even if we don't totally understand what the singer is singing, we attach emotions and memories to the music. The song means something to us. We can recall the first time we heard it, or the first time we really heard it. As artists, we can feel this huge responsibility to imbue our work with meaning. The idea of creating something that's meaningless is kind of anxiety-inducing. With my own music, I write these tunes, and when I decide on a title, it's really a way of saying what they mean to me. But even the title can be up for interpretation. Just finding the title can sometimes be the most difficult part of the process for me. Since I'm not writing lyrics, I can't just pick a line from the song. It's really a soul-searching exercise, which can take a while. I could also just skip that part of the process and just number my tunes. It would be nice to be able to let the listeners choose their own title. Unfortunately, the royalty collection agencies wouldn't be able to handle that level of ambiguity. One of my recent compositions I named, It Is What You Think. It was inspired by that interview with Maggie Smith. Again, the poet Maggie Smith. So I guess my advice to everyone is that our creativity doesn't require us to mean anything. If we're really in the flow, the work takes whatever form it chooses. We don't have to know what it means, we just have to know that it's true to us. We've reached the tips and tricks portion of today's entertainment. Sorry if this is starting to get a little long. I'm probably going to have to edit this a lot. Hey, that could be a great way of demonstrating ambiguity in podcasting. If I just stopped here, just kidding. That would be, I'd probably lose a lot of listeners like that if I haven't lost them already. Okay, here are six ways we can use ambiguity in our work. Number one, visual ambiguity leaving things out of focus or distorting an image, or an image of someone looking at something, but we can't see what they're looking at. Any kind of abstraction so that whatever we're seeing is not totally clear. Number two, narrative ambiguity. When we leave out parts of a plot or storyline or obscure the motivations of a character, basically not telling the whole story. Number three, using symbolism and metaphor. I always think of the paintings of Frida Kahlo when I think of this. She used symbolism in ways that could have different interpretations. When we don't explicitly say what we're talking about, but instead use metaphor to represent it, that leaves it open to interpretation, which stimulates curiosity in the beholder. Remember, we try to make it fit 
with what we know. Number four, temporal ambiguity or messing with the time. As a drummer, this is a big one for me. Displacing rhythms to give the feeling that things are happening at a different pace or in a different meter can be an amazing device in music to build tension. But also in storytelling, when things jump around in time, I think about the movie Arrival a lot. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's uh, with Amy Adams. It's from director Denis Villeneuve. I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> I think he's French. Uh, he also directed Dune and the second Blade Runner. But the experience of watching Arrival for the first time is so powerful exactly because of this temporal ambiguity. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but if you haven't seen it, take a look and you'll know what I mean. Or another one with Amy Adams, Nocturnal Animals, by director Tom Ford. Temporal ambiguity in action. Okay, number five, multidisciplinary forays. And by this, I mean when the beholder thinks they're hearing a podcast and suddenly realize it's just some guy rambling. No, <laughs> I mean, I mean, for instance, Hannah Gatsby is a great example of multidisciplinary forays. She's a comedian in most people's estimation, but then you see her show and you realize that she's actually a storyteller, but she's using stand-up comedy as a way in. And so you find yourself as an audience member realizing that this is much more than joke telling. Or another example, a Bjork concert is much more than music making. She's a musician who is also a performance artist. Or a similar thing is uh, how David Bowie would assume these different characters who also made music. And finally, number six, interactive art. Coming up with some way for the beholder to have a direct influence on the outcome is literally handing over the reins to the audience, temporarily. Improv comedy has elements of this when they ask the audience to give them certain things to get them started, like give me a place, a profession, and a food, and then they just run with it. Ten Men in the Telephone is a great band from Amsterdam that created an app that their audience could use to influence their performance. So you really never knew what was going to happen. Ambiguity is a beautiful thing. Think of all the notes Miles Davis left out, or the fuzzy symbolism in Frida Kahlo's paintings or the ending to director Alejandro Iñárritu's Birdman. Could he actually fly? No one knows for sure. The work that counts on all of us to fill in the gaps with our own creativity is some of the greatest stuff out there, because it trusts us, the audience, to interpret it in our own way. For that moment, we become a collaborator. All of this is not to say that the work that is more explicit in its meaning or tells you exactly what it means is not good. We can do either or both. It's all good. Just remember to go around the bend. Duh. That's all I've got today. If you have a moment, please go and review and or rate the show. It would mean a lot to me and seriously help more people find us. Anything mentioned in this episode, you can find links to in the episode notes. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Until then, keep the flow.